and gentlemen, welcome to the most electrifying, must-listen-to podcast in sports entertainment. Welcome to FFC. I am your host, Damian Ellinghouse, accompanied as always by good friend and lover of blood sport, Ryan Doyle. How are you, sir? How are you, sir? I am under quarantine, is what I am. Now, fret not, oh, listeners. Oh, quarry boy. Fret not, listeners. Old dames wasn't out there partying it up and cutting a rug in New York City's finest. No, no. He made the mistake that all of us make later in life. He visited his mother. Uh, yes. Damien led a mother caravan down Long Beach Avenue with all his fellow uh, centipedes and uh, trying to bring change to, to Long Beach. So this is what he gets. I I understand none of what you just said, and his I hated all navigators. of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I am quarantined. Coronavirus has hit home, but thankfully people are in good spirits. I believe myself to be a-okay, so I will start accepting GoFundMe donations whenever you need, but I will not need them for funeral expenses just yet. Uh, working from home, so that's that's fun. Yeah, how do you like it? I'm on my, uh, I'm on my sixth month now and ready to bite the bullet. I always thought it'd be a great thing, man, but it's, it's really it. Gina's on like month seven with, you know, no end in sight. And like, it's a good thing, but it's also, uh, you know, in, in my field where it's a lot of face to face interactions with clients, mm-hmm. it's definitely a little tougher than you might like it to be, but you know, we get by it has its, it has its, uh, has its benefits. Like the fact that mm-hmm. I can wear pizza pajamas. <laughs> You know that one episode of SpongeBob when uh, Squidward moves to like that village that like has other Squidwards? Yeah, and uh, he thinks it's like the greatest thing ever, but he like consistently does the same thing every day, and it's just him playing clarinet, him realizing like, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> oh, but that oh, was I hate working this. from home. Yeah, yeah, that's that's basically it. Um, other than that, uh, we're doing okay. We got spooky season right is this weekend. Um, how about that fog last night? It was rolling on in. Um, and well, we'll talk about it, but I, I watched a lot. I watched a lot of wrestling recently. Um, and so I guess before we dive right into it, uh, what are we, what do we have on tap today? Well, Damien. Papa took another little excursion out to California. Oh, we a spready boy. You calling me a spreader. It's not on the quarantine list. Yep. King Cuomo took it off. Oh, hail. Hail to the king. I'm a Queens boy. Uh, So uh, I couldn't track this down the last time I was there. But I was able to track it down this time. And it is... The limited edition Belching Beaver Brewery. We got, yes indeed folks, a Deftones collaboration. This is the Phantom Bride IPA 
brewed with the finest wheat, the finest malt, the finest hops, and the finest yeast. And actually, we got some Amarillo, Citra, Simcoe, and Mosaic hops up in this bitch. Sounds like a hoppy boy. It's a hoppy um, boy, yes. I have something that I think I haven't drank on the podcast yet, and if I have, fuck all of you, I do the best I can. This is Lone Pine's Choco Tuesday. You will note it's fun, sporty uh, can. Uh, it yeah, is like a king cone. Yes, it's an imperial stout brewed with chocolate, vanilla, waffle cones, lactose, and peanuts. Lactose. It is unfiltered and unpasteurized because all good things are wild and free. Keep refrigerated. Craft beers are better fresh. Live yeast may settle. That part's less interesting. Uh, this was one of the boys we brought back from our main excursion uh, when me and the other young lions took our excursion. And uh, this one is delicious. I have had it before, but I am happy to have it again. So why don't we just get right into it and crack these bad boys? Let me sip. That's nice. Well, that's good. Yeah. You want to you want to discuss yours first? It's a nice uh so it tastes like an imperial stout for sure. And uh you know, it's it's got lactose. It's got it's uh it's definitely very sweet, but it's very drinkable. Uh this guy clocks in at 8%. So it's not crazy crazy, you know. Sometimes those imperials can get into like the 10, 11. I have a I have a K KCBC beer in there that's like 16%. So all things considered, not too alcoholy. Uh, really nice mix of flavors. It's not too desserty, but you know, it's it's right in that sweet spot where you can have more than one, but you'll also be very content with one because there's a lot going on in it. Yeah, mine I was expecting to be like a darker amber type of IPA, like a uh, like a Sierra Nevada torpedo, just by mm-hmm. the way they were describing it, but. It's really clear, and uh, just has it has that bite at the beginning of it, but then the aftertaste it just coats the mouth with a nice sweetness, and uh, they really do a good job. Mm. Mouth coating. Um, yeah. love to have it. So yeah, I mean, we might as well just jump right into it. We uh, there has been quite a lot of wrestling that's happened recently, right? Uh, real quick, the G One Climax Thirty has concluded, and. In what is quite frankly a stunning uh, upset that I and Ryan did not see coming, Kota Ibushi won his second straight G1 and making his third ever finals. Now, that is the first time in history it's ever happened. The last person to try and get there was Kenny Omega uh, when he went to -to back-to-back finals in 2016 and 2017. Uh, but then failed to get there in 2018. Actually, Naito was also there. Uh, he faced him. I think he. I think Naito made it 2017, possibly 2018, and something else. Uh, yeah, he was also actually, in the finals. Also. Was he in the finals three times in a row? Uh, he was in the finals twice. It was uh, against Kenny Omega. Um, but now I'm mixing up names. So point being, Kotobushi is the first person to ever get to -to -to back-to-back-to-back finals, and the first person since Hiroyoshi Tenzan in 2003 and 2004 to win it back-to-back, with the and him being one of only three people to ever do it, with him, Tenzan, and Masahiro Chono. 
And now Anoki did win back-to-back IWGP leagues and MSE series, but those were not the G1 Climax, so they're different. Uh, I got to tell you, I really, I just, I didn't, I didn't think they were going to do Coda twice. Um, and it's a very interesting story that they tell here. So Coda beats Sonata. And let me tell you, folks, the A block and B block finals were just incredible. This was a great G1 up and down the board uh, filled with a lot of drama and great stuff. But the A block and B block had a ton of great stuff happening. Probably the most significant is Will Ospreay turning heel. Now, Will Ospreay in his match against Okada was a very important match. Ospreay had a very slim chance of getting through. He had to beat Okada, and I think he basically needed uh, Jay to lose and Ibushi to lose and someone else as well. Uh, Okada needed to beat Osprey and have Jay and someone else lose. However, what happened was uh, Osprey throughout the match, they have a great match together and Osprey is really like kind of at his limit. And this is, this is probably the best match Okada had outside of the Shingo match where Okada is really in peak form. And Osprey is just like kind of understanding that he's outclassed and saying like, I'm just as good. I'm just as good. And just getting wailed on. And then out of nowhere, um, this massive guy comes when it looks like Okada is about to put Will to sleep. First, Bea Priestley comes out and you think, oh, okay, maybe she's there to throw in the towel. Uh, maybe she's there to, uh, maybe she's, maybe there'll be some fuckery, but you know, like Will sometimes will, will do that. So whatever, play a little bit of the heel. Um, but instead what happens is then this massive guy comes out of nowhere, uh, Bia distracts the ref and comes up and puts a claw on Okada. And this person turns out to be Tomoyuki Oka, who now goes by the name, the great Okan, uh, puts the claw on basically the iron claw, puts it on Okada, slams him down. Osprey hits the Stormbreaker and gets the pin. And he's just looking at this guy like, what the fuck is happening? Uh, now, the Great Okan, for those who didn't know who he was, uh, he was a young lion back in 2015, and he went on an excursion uh, out in like 2016, 2017. And he went over to AJPW, and he also went to RevPro. And that is where he he debuted himself as the Great Okan, basically. He's like this Mongolian. Um and he was taken under the belt by one of the big heels over there and like ran rampant throughout the whole place. RevPro, of course, is located in Britain, one of Osprey's home promotions, if not his home promotion, along with ZSJ. Uh, and of course, he is their current champion as British heavyweight champion. Uh, and after the match, it is revealed that he uh, collected the Great Okan as part of what he dubbed the Empire, his new faction. Uh, defecting from chaos uh, by going after their leader. Very interesting stuff there. Um, Osprey's played the heel for a long time, and so it's not surprising to have them do this. And it's also not surprising to see him go off and be in his own faction because, well, frankly, there's <clears throat> there's only really four factions in New Japan. Five if you want to count, you know, Tanahashi and Ibushi kind of just being like, it's called like the New Japan Army. They're just... They're unaffiliated, but they're affiliated. That's like where Tenzan is as well, Kojima, all of them. 
Uh, but it is probably time for a new faction. And there's a lot of people where you're not really sure where they're going to go. Osprey is obviously someone they love a lot. Um, but I didn't, I didn't expect it. Uh, I didn't expect him to get a win over Okada. I certainly didn't expect him to go heel over Okada. Um, it was very interesting. Ryan, what did you think? That makes sense. Um, you know, with Evil and Sonata splitting up, uh, they definitely have more room to start utilizing other talent uh, in regards to a stable. Uh, I think Osprey works. I think he just he's naturally more of a heel anyway, just the way he, he wrestles and stuff like that. Um, right, he's a very cocky lad. I would have expected ZSJ to kind of like take a heel role in the stable. Would you agree? Do you think he'd be better suited for that? I think the issue here is that I can't ever see ZSJ and Osprey being pals together. Uh, ZSJ fucking hates him. Not pals, but I mean like, yeah, like ZSJ on his own. So I, I, what, there's a lot at play here, right? Because uh, to get to the B block, you know, um, what happens in the A block after that in a massive upset is Ibushi and Taichi have this fucking insane crazy match where it's just like like way way better it's than it just kicks been. like the whole fucking time is just it's just kicking they just fucking kicked each other but it was so aggressive and so goddamn brutal um and what ended up happening is is he wins that match and jay has his Jay has his his uh, fate in his own hands against Ishii, who's always a tough out in the G1, but you kind of expect Jay to go over. And in what is probably one of the best uh, pure face comebacks I've seen in a match in a very long time, Ishii withstands Jay and Gato and just nonsense after nonsense after nonsense uh, to stand tall and beat Jay White, uh, ending hopes of the J1. And after the match, Ishii just like pours the fucking bag of ice over his head and walks away without looking back. Doesn't give a shit about the the implications. He was there to win. He won. And Gato, more animated than we've seen him in a while, is kicking the ring and he's yelling and he's like, oh, Jay, it's not your fault. And Jay's just kind of glaring at him because throughout the whole G1, Evil has been cementing the, you know, planting these little seeds of like, Jay, can you really, can you trust Yujiro? Like, can you really trust Gato? Uh, refusing to let Kenta in uh, in their match, you know, refusing to let him in in the two-suite. And so to your question, right, we have a lot of people right now that kind of are feeling like they either don't fit into their faction right now or they have outgrown it. Osprey had outgrown Chaos. That much is clear. Uh, One of the top guys in, he was just too big a star to be under Okada, right? Because everyone's under Okada. There's no shame in being under the ace of New Japan, five-time IWGP heavyweight champion in his prime. But uh, that's the story they're going with is that, like, you held me down, and it's a little ridiculous because Okada looked at him as a little brother. So it's, like, a little ridiculous in kayfabe, but it makes for a great story because uh, Okada's been incensed ever since. Um but, you know, to your, to your point, ZSJ has long been seen as someone that might take over Suzuki-Goon. Uh, Taichi also being someone, especially after Taichi beat Suzuki in the G1, uh, pinned him in a fucking excellent match. Evil 
Uh, it's hard to see where Bullet Club goes. There's a lot of different ways you could go. Is Jay going to get kicked out uh, as is custom in Bullet Club? Will it be evil that leaves on his own with Dick Togo? Dick Togo being great friends with Gato and Jado. Will it be Kenta that leaves and goes somewhere? So there's a lot of different routes you can go. Uh, and I like that we have a new stable. I could see evil joining up with him, right? I could see Kenta going. I could see a lot of stuff happening right now with that depending on how they want to do it. And I'm very interested to see how it grows. You know, I don't know if they're going to openly put Sonata up to the level that Evil is currently. Uh, certainly not a double champion, I guess. You're more seasoned with New Japan than I am. But the two of them kind of elevating themselves kind of reminds me of like Eddie Guerrero and like Benoit. Just like they were just kind of like mid-card guys, but they eventually like were able to elevate themselves to the top of the card. You know, eventually just eventually headlining WrestleMania 20. Um, you know, I, I kind of see that dynamic with them. It's unfortunate that evil and Sonata's split was not given more of a storyline. Uh, part of that has to do with just who they are. Like they, they were together as a tag team, but they didn't necessarily like love each other. Like the bigger drama within, uh, LIJ was evil and Naito and evil and Hiromu. Um, Sonata's just, you know, he's the guy that lays back. He's cool. He's whatever. And we're going to see what happens after this, right? Because I'm rambling. I always do. Uh, the B block was also full of of really great moments. Uh, Naito losing to Kenta in like a roll up. So Kenta's going to get another shot at him. Uh, Evil losing to Sonata. Sonata being able to withstand Dick Togo and all that shit. Um, Sonata ends up winning his block. Um, Ibushi wins his block. They go on to face each other. And Ibushi comes out victorious in a match that was like, I don't know, it was, it's it's weird. Uh, a lot of people online thought it was, you know, one of Sonata's best matches. And to be sure, it was a very good match, but it never quite hit that next level I was kind of waiting for. There was a moment where uh, Ibushi got like, he got hit with like a botched drop kick or something. And he just like kind of didn't seem right afterwards for a little bit, and I don't know. It just it never hit that next gear. But it was it was a good match for sure. Um, I was positive Sonata was going to go over. Um, and now we find ourselves in a very interesting place where, uh, at Power Struggle coming up, it's going to be Ibushi versus Jay White for the rights to the Wrestle Kingdom contract due to Jay beating him in the G One. Um, we're going to have, uh, an interesting dynamic where Ibushi's whole thing has been, I'm going to be God. I'm going to make myself into a God. And he, uh, now he has to get past Jay who embarrassed him at Wrestle Kingdom, embarrassed him in the G1. And it's just, you wonder the way that commentary is talking about him, the way he's talking about himself, the way that he fought against Taichi, uh, the way that Taichi and ZSJ and his storylines have been going, I don't know. I, I a heel turn has to be coming soon, but I don't know whether it's going to be um whether he'll get to Wrestle Kingdom on his own and maybe get to face Naito or whoever might be champion at that point, or whether Jay beats him for the contract and that makes him snap. There's a lot of different ways it could go, and it's interesting for sure. Well, do you remember the next level that Abushi achieved at Wrestle Kingdom where it, it totally looks like Murder Abushi, yes. Right. I think he's just going to take it to that level from here on out. And it's not necessarily going to be like a vicious heel turn, 
but you know he's going to win by any means I, I yeah and whether or not the viewer views that as a heel turn i don't think he's going to be cemented either as a heel or a face he's just going to do Ibushi and he's going to do whatever it takes to get I, to the title. Yeah. He'll do some, he'll probably do some nefarious things, but it's going to be more in vain of him just trying to get to where he wants to go as opposed to like, you know, betraying. I think that um, the, the way that the Ibushi Suzuki match happened with just this brutal, aggressive shoot style match. And when Ibushi hits the Kamagoye on Suzuki and pins him with Suzuki just looking up smiling like maniacally to himself. I th- I think that the best version of a heel Ibushi would be very similar to Suzuki where just it's murder Ibushi kind of from the jump like he's just in that dark place all the time and it, like you said it's it's not necessarily that he's hyper nefarious it's just like I'm going to kick the shit out of everybody because Ibushi has that storyline going for him that he uh, he's been one of their best stars since day one, and then he committed to them instead of going over to WWE. And then when it came time for Kenny and the Elite to leave, and he could have easily jumped over to AEW and been a star, he stuck around and did it his own way, and he wins the G1, and then he gets embarrassed against Okada, and he gets embarrassed against Jay, and then he wins the G1 again. Does he get to Wrestle Kingdom? Does Jay take the contract? Like, There's a story there about... His whole career, Kota Ibushi has been the golden star, the good guy. Mr. Cares about the sport, you know, help out his teammates. Somebody's going to catch that ire. And if it's not Tanahashi, it's going to be somebody else and it's going to be soon. Um, But really interesting stuff coming up. Power Struggle, I believe, is November 7th. I think it might be the same day as Full Gear or somewhere around there. Like I said, y'all have Ibushi and Jay. You'll have Naito and Evil for like the fifth time. I really wish they'd fucking split up the double championships already and let us move on, but whatever. You're going to have Kenta versus Tanahashi for the United States Championship briefcase, which should be a lot of fun. Uh, if Tanahashi wins, Tanahashi gets to face John Moxley. That would be the second AEW champion that Hiroshi Tanahashi would face at a Wrestle Kingdom, presuming, of course, that Moxley remains champion. Very, very interesting. Uh, and you got some other stuff coming up too. Overall, the G1 was great. Uh, I'll stop talking about it. I've taken taken up a lot of our airtime with it. Uh, we got a lot of interesting stuff going on with it. And I hope that anyone that watched had a great time. Uh, I'll tell you what I had a great time with. Hell in a Cell. Yeah. Hell in a Cell. It was a good show. And uh, our predictions came true. Yes. Um. I think Roman versus Jay was way better than it should have been. And they really I got to tell you, I yeah, got to tell like you. No, no. I mean, I, oh. I you heard me say it last time that I really feel right. like we didn't need to do a second match of this. Mm-hmm. But absolutely. I mean, that first match was an instant classic. But the second one was a whole new level of. And, you know, to our point, actually. Thinking about the totality of that event, right? And I'll just, I'll kind of jump between the events because there's only really two, there's only like three matches worth talking about on the card, really. Um, You look at the match between Roman and Jay, and it is this very old school uh, steel cage, hell in a cell type match where the cage itself is utilized, but not to like a crazy degree. You know, you get raked and you get hit, but... 
there's some weapons. Uh, that spot with the big ass leather fucking belt for both of them was great. I don't know if it's leather rubber. I, I'm not sure what it, it is. Like a fire hose. Yeah, maybe it was a fire hose. Um, the kendo sticks. You know, Jay Jay grabbing his torso and being like, "You gonna get that work?" Uh, and just beating the shit out of Roman, choking him out, looking like he was gonna choke. I mean. Jay really elevated himself and Roman really helped elevate Jay uh, to a level where I now credibly see him as someone that can be in the main event. And this is something we talk about all the time on this podcast, uh, outside of this podcast. Somewhere in WWE are people that know how to write good, gripping, engaging stories in a wrestling ring. These are two matches where the outcome was never in dispute. You never thought Jay was actually going to beat Roman Reigns this early into his heel turn, this early into his championship. And yet, on sheer strength of character work alone, matched with a really good work rate, he had you believing in Hell in a Cell, choking out Roman like, shit, I, I don't know, maybe he will fucking do it. What do I know? Like, how does he get out of this? Um, the way that he refused to back down, refused to quit until his brother comes in. Roman putting on an Oscar-worthy performance, breaking down, crying in the middle of the ring, saying, I'm sorry, only to choke out Jimmy, forcing Jay to say, I quit for the benefit of his brother, and now they become his, Paul called them indentured servants. It's kind of uh, I, I feel like we could have that's used strange. other terms, but okay, that's what we did. Point being, oh, you is that had what they're this, running with? They're gonna, he's gonna, they're like forced to jo- like join forces now. Because what he what he said is, if you don't, if I make you say I quit and you don't acknowledge me as the tribal chief and you don't fucking follow me, I'm gonna kick you out of the family. I'm gonna kick your brother out of the family. I'm gonna kick your entire families and your grandchildren out of the family. Like, and that's what ended up happening. Is is so. He said, I quit, and now they're his servants. Yeah, so what I totally thought, like, it was good on Roman's part because I couldn't tell whether or not he was, like, this demented heel. It mm-hmm. kind of, it, it really, he really projected himself as, like, like, seriously, like, Jay, like, stop doing this. Like, you know I'm going to win. Like, I don't... I you really bought don't it, yeah. It. Yeah, I bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. I didn't want, like, I don't want to do this to you. I don't, like, I don't want to keep beating you up. Like, honestly, it's like, stop making me do this. And then when Jimmy mm-hmm. came in, I thought that Jimmy was going to turn on Jay. And I was like, oh, shit, he's going to join forces uh-huh. with Roman. And then they had that interaction where Roman's like, okay, I'll stop. Not. And, like, just absolutely chose the shit out of Jimmy. Good use of the of the kayfabe breaking when he's like, dude, this is Josh, man. It's not Jay Uso. Like, you gotta relax. Exact perfect, perfect use of that because yeah. you know that their last names aren't Uso, right? So we are right. allowed to use shoot names, right? There's nothing wrong with people using performer names. Like there are fucking musicians that use performer names. So, like you said, perfect use of kayfabe. Like, what are you doing? Like, this is not Jay Uso. Like, this is Josh. Like, this is your cousin. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. And like I said, such great work on Roman's part to really make you believe, like, you don't know what's going to happen. Sure, you right. know, like, yeah, but he's obviously going to hit him. But his performance was so good that you're like, I don't know. Maybe we're going to run a storyline for a little bit where, like, Roman is kind of unsure on the path he's taking. And, like, it made you believe that you don't know where it's going to go. And that's my whole point, right? To to kind of bring it to the point I I am trying to make is so this first match is a really great old school style brutal steel cage match and 
Then the second Hell in a Cell match, Sasha and Bailey is like a master class modern day Hell in a Cell match with interesting use of weaponry and really interesting use of move sets and a great story told by two people that just were given the, the free reign to go. Um, yeah. And then From you a had a third match. standpoint. Yeah. Before we get to the third one, I just wanted to, to flesh out Bailey versus Sasha. Uh, so again, you know, not tooting our own horns here, but we will toot toot. Uh, we said that this would be in terms of technicality within using the actual cell itself uh, would have been the best one in the night. And that was true. Uh, just yes. immediately from the get go when uh, Bailey brings the chair in and then Sasha immediately kicks it out. And she's like, no, wait a minute. Like that. I thought so that was just like badass. A little, a little subtle, like great part. And like, it's good to see the new crop of stars still utilizing that and getting like that that aspect of wrestling, just like the, t- the comedic timing, not even like comedic, but like the timing with everything in terms of like that added so Absolutely. much more. Uh, you know, there was a part that Bailey botched a little bit when she was trying to set up the kendo sticks on the side, but she saved herself when she went up to the ref and she was like, can you help me with this? And he's like, no, I can't help you with that. So I thought that was a nice little <laughs> and, added. And there. I really love, and I really love that when she couldn't get it going, she just dropped the part and we moved on because too often, uh, wrestling these days is overproduced to the point where it's like there's a spot and you're going to get the spot right and you're going to mm-hmm. do it and people have pointed out before that like uh, you tend to notice it a lot in the women's matches uh, probably as a way that they are produced because I think it's only because they're a little fixated we, on the women's matches you know what I mean like when it when it happened in a women's match it's obvious to the viewer just because you know with the history of women's matches and stuff like that if it happens in a man's match you know it's like ah, alright whatever but I mean kudos to Bailey for owning it and, you know, dealing with the thing at hand instead of just giving up and going on to the next thing. Because who cares? Because the, the story doesn't need whatever weird thing right. you were going to do with those kendo sticks. It's fine. We can move on. Yeah. Uh, this was a great, not that you needed a reintroduction to Sasha, but I think she needed this match to reaffirm herself. Yes. Uh, yes. The, the luchador spot when she does the, the three point, when she like got Bailey in the arm, in the arm drag, went on to the top of the ring, bounced off mm-hmm. the, the cage, and then got her in a DDT. Uh, that was fantastic. And yeah, just all around, what a great match, honestly. And I'm happy Sasha, that, yeah, Bailey had a great run, and Sasha is now going to have her own run. So a good, good solid uh, feud going on. And everybody's a little different here. Like, I, I've thought a lot recently about, like, the way that, different promotions do feuds and championship feuds right Mm -hmm. and this like i said like these three hell in a cell matches kind of show three very different sides of wwe right because the third hell in a cell match with randy and drew was as by the numbers modern day hell in a cell match like as it gets like that is if you wanted to know what a wwe hell in a cell match looks like in 2020 as like just an average it is that match. It is a match that is, is fine. It was, uh, you know, it, it was fine. It was it was worked well. Uh, the two guys in it are good at what they do. Um, but it is, it was just very fucking boring. And part of that it is was. because, like, what is this, the fourth or fifth match these guys have had? And, like, Randy's been beaten three different times, like... It, I said it last podcast that it really I don't understand why he would get another shot. And what makes me think about this is right even down to the ending with like 
Randy goes and leaves and then he looks up at the cage and you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, obviously by the Randy's out. So then Randy's going to go on top of the cage and then they're going to climb off the cage and then somebody's going to get thrown onto the table. And like the right. only well, interesting. That, yeah, that's the part I wanted to discuss was, you know, and that like Randy leaving is just classic Randy Orton psychological shit that he does, which I think worked. But again, stop going up to the top of the cage. Like, we know that you're not going to do the Mick Foley spot. We know that you're not going to do, you're not going to fall through the cage itself because, A, it's way bigger than the old one. So even if they wanted to do that in a modern 2027, <laughs> they can't because some of them will, will legit die. Yeah. But yeah, it was just so, like, I honestly liked the match too because I thought the same exact thing that you were thinking at the beginning of this. Like, this is going to be boring. Like, I might as well just turn it off here. But it was a well-sold match. Uh two absolute boots just going at it but then they got to the top of the cage and it was just like they didn't even do anything on top of the cage they found a random pipe up there to use as a weapon and then like they slowly climbed down to the side to do that side Vince McMahon spot and falling off the side of the cage like it was cool I thought they should have flipped that match with the Usos match I think if they did that people would be able to pallet it a little better but yeah you know I it wasn't a necessary match, and but it's over. And if if it if we needed to get if we needed to use that to get to Randy being champion, I understand. We just I we could have done it in the ambulance match. We could have done it before. Like when Randy challenged him, people were like, you know what. Randy's fucking on right now. If anybody is going to take the belt from Drew and have it like not suck, it would probably be Randy. But they overdid it and it got to the point where now it's like, okay, cool. Like, but we, why did we get there? And it makes me think a lot about the way that we look at feuds in wrestling. Um, I'm not even necessarily saying that this is the right way to go about it. But when you look at companies like New Japan, or we'll even say companies like AEW, Championship feuds tend to be the feud, the build, uh, the match, and then we move on. And it's not to say that people don't come back later and have feuds. Over the last week or so, I watched like the first five or six matches of Tanahashi versus Okada when Okada came back from Excursion in 2012 as the Rainmaker and beat Tanahashi on his first title champion, uh, first uh, title shot. And then like... Tanahashi wins it back, but it's like one or two defenses later. Then Okada fails to take it from Tanahashi five matches into his into his reign. And then Okada beats him, but it's like four matches after that. Like, it's not that you can't have people fight for the belt over and over, but the way that WWE does it specifically, where it's the next four or five pay-per-views are all going to be some iteration of these two's matches, it doesn't it makes it feel very formulaic and I really think it does a lot to destroy the credibility of the loser over and over because you lose one match, you lose one match. You lost to the champion. There's no shame in it. They really suffer from that and the 50, 50 booking and, but you know, sorry, continue your point. And and so to the point, it's just like, I, I think that that really hurts when they have interesting stories to tell and they have good characters to use. And so in this pay-per-view, sandwiched you know in between with little like whatever matches that were like really not worth talking about like i don't need to talk about jeff hardy and elias um i i can mention i guess that like i will never take anybody saying the word slapjack seriously um <laughs> and that shucks that sucks yeah. for sean thorne uh slapjack fucking at least t-bar and mace are like 
kind of cool sounding names. Well, fucking Slapjack is ridiculous. And he's got the most ridiculous looking mask. Whatever. Anyway, um, point being, the, the, the Roman and Jay match and story, incredible storytelling, well worked, well booked, a great way to elevate somebody to a main event caliber uh, contender. The result is never in dispute, but... Hey, they make you believe. Sasha and Bailey, another example of a feud that deserved to be in Hell in a Cell, deserved to be there with a conclusive, decisive finish, an incredible match, one that probably rivals the Brooklyn match, which is really saying something because that's one of the best matches in WWE history. And again, well done. Good story. Good lead up. Makes sense. And then the third match, which is this is modern day WWE. It's, it's so interesting that they hit gold sometimes. Like, SmackDown hits gold more often than not right now, but they just can't get out of their own way to be like, this is good. This was a yeah. good thing that I watched, you know? Yeah, my last point on it would be just that they should have added Keith Lee to this match. And I wouldn't have Keith taken the pin. They still could have had Randy pin um, Drew. But, you know, if you were going to use him at like kind of like midway through this feud, I think it would it would have made the match go a lot better. You would be able to show Keith Lee in the Hell in a Cell, which is just a you know from a visual perspective looks amazing. And yeah, I, I you know I think that would have made it gone a little better. But it it is it is what it is. It wasn't a terrible match. It was just you know like you said, a buying the numbers Hell in a Cell match, and something that we harped on two weeks ago, where it played out exactly how it was. But yep. Decent pay per view, and uh, now we have Survivor Series coming up, which we'll cover, and uh, uh, let's see how it goes. Yeah, it was it was fun. Oh, yeah, I guess it's worth mentioning also that uh, Otis lost the Money in a Bank contract to the Miz after Tucker turned on Tuck. him, and then Tucker 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 then proceeded to cut like what every single fucking tag partner that has turned on their yeah. partner said. They'll he kind of has, <laughs> has like a point though, because he really. Pretty much did everything for Otis. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like I like how Otis immediately came out and there was no like, why did you do this to me? Like, oh, it's just like I'm mad at you now. Yeah. They could do it a couple ways. They could do it where like Otis is like, you're right, man. You're right. Like you were you were behind me all the time and I got the spotlight too much. And uh, and then Tucker can continue to turn on him and then he's just like a jealous heel. I don't know. Let's see. I mean, if they're going to split them up, might as well do something like this. I give WWE absolutely no faith to tell an interesting story like that because that's the story they could have done the last time Dean Ambrose and Seth split when when Dean hit Seth and then Seth was like, it's okay, I understand, it's okay. They could have done a nuanced story there and didn't, so I don't think they're going to do it here when the stakes are much lower. Uh, it, whatever, it was, whatever, it happened, we move on. Um, anyway, so... To, yeah, to your point, like it was, it was a fine pay per view. I'm not like mad at it. It was fine. Uh, yeah, I just now, see it as like a nice way to move things forward. But you know, we'll you, you you know what? You got two really really great matches out of it. Uh, one of the best women's matches in WWE history, I think, is fair to say. And I will correct myself from last podcast. I said that Sasha was in uh, three Hell in a Cell matches, and this would be her fourth. This was her third. She had previously faced Becky and Charlotte, uh, so I do apologize about that. Uh, she's now in the winner's column. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I guess uh, also in AEW, uh, Omega going through uh, the singles tournament right now to be number one contender, uh, putting down Sunny Kiss in real quick fashion. V-Trigger, One-Winged Angel, that's it. Pinned her for like 10 seconds. Um, and uh, just really pushing the, I'm going to be the worst version of myself I can be for you assholes that wanted me to be that. And I'm very excited to see that version of Kenny back, whatever version we get. Um, the Bucks continuing to be assholes. Hangman really struggling against Colt Cabana now has to face Wardlow. Uh, the only thing that I'll say about AEW before we move on, uh, full gears coming up. You're going to get Eddie Kingston versus Moxley in a I quit match. Great, great booking from both of them. Kingston, you want to talk about grabbing the brass ring, right? And that brass ring doesn't exist. That, but I was just about to Kingston say that. turned an indie promo on Cody into a championship match, into getting his own stable, into getting an impromptu title shot where he gets uh put out without ever like tapping to now this. And really great storytelling, great history between these two of Eddie Kingston just screaming at, at John Moxley about like, you were one of us. We were brothers. You left me behind for the world of entertainers. You said you were going to bring me with you and you left me here. And now I do dark shit. And you wonder why, like Eddie Kingston is a masterclass in promo work, uh, across the board. And this is such a good example of when somebody is over, this is how, and, and here you go, right? He lost to Moxley, right? But then Moxley faced Archer and then he faced some other people. And now Kingston gets his second opportunity. And I'm not questioning. I'm not going, oh, why Eddie Kingston? Why again? I'm going, all right, fuck yeah. Like he didn't fucking tap out last time. And this is a well-told story. Uh, kudos to him. Don't think he's going to win the match, but I know we're going to get a great match out of both of them. It doesn't even matter with him because he could still lose and just continue what he's doing. It'll be Absolutely. Awesome. And that is the best type of wrestler in, in today's uh, modern environment. If you could just keep doing that, man, you're fucking money. And he's been money and, for 20 years. Exactly. And uh, yeah, we'll have more to cover on AEW uh, in the next episode just because we're going to be a little close to full gear and they, they still have some uh, more stuff to hash out. But, you know. Yeah. We we got some stuff to it's figure out. It's gonna be good. Um, you know, Omega, the odds on favorite to win that singles tournament. Uh the you are now gonna get the Bucks versus FTR at full gear. Uh that's a match like five, six years into making, maybe more. So that's gonna be great. Um and uh last thing I'll say is uh the Jericho MJF thing uh was I don't I don't think I loved it. Um it was fine, it was like entertaining. I'm not going to complain about goofiness on my wrestling TV show by any means, but uh, I don't know. It's, I don't know. The storyline's more interesting if I don't have them doing a Broadway piece. And all I'll say is like, it doesn't bother me all that much, but it really does feel like it's kind of hard for you to constantly put down WWE and then do shit like this. Like, not for nothing. Uh, it doesn't discredit everything they're saying, but you know, it, that was just my take. Like, I didn't need it. It was it, whatever. Um, all right. So as we spoke about last week, right, Helena cell is now an annual pay-per-view as opposed to the spectacle it once was, you know, monstrous contraption used as the ultimate blow off and a brutal personal feud that saw no way out, nothing else to do. Uh, but you know, this is the way of most wrestling gimmicks. Uh, you know, Helena cell is really just a modified version of the steel cage match 
which audiences have been seeing going back as far as the territory days, you know, uh, when you think steel cage match, right? You think Dusty Rhodes, the Horsemen, Bruno San Martino, Larry Zabisco, Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat, right? You, it's something that's been around forever. Uh, but did you know that the first steel cage match took place back in 1937? Uh, I did not know that. Count Pedro Rossi and Jack Bloomfield, not to be confused with the uh, boxer had the first ever cage match in Atlanta. They were surrounded by chicken wire to prevent Ah, unruly stragglers and ruffians from raining down vengeance upon the poor unsuspecting fighters whilst they get their knicker sorted. Um, And that was five years before the first ever steel cage match between Jack Catan and Ignacio Martinez in a teeny tiny six foot steel cage. Itty itty bitty boy, a little, little steel cage junior. Uh, and that those matches were something that would only really take place a handful of times over the next 30 years, right? They really didn't happen all that often. They were too expensive. You had to ship them around from place to place. It just didn't make sense most of the time. Uh, so that's 30 years before the likes of the Italian strongman and the nature boy would grace its hollowed steel. So while the cages rattled over in Detroit, a young Lebanese American circus strongman was beginning to ply his trade under the tutelage of Adam Weissmuller whose uncle played Tarzan on the silver screen for all you movie buffs out there. Now, this young man gained a reputation in his native Hartford for being a real tough son of a gun. Uh, He would invite audience members to come over and fight him, and not a single one ever lasted past five minutes, which is saying something considering there were 65 of them. Uh, So we're talking some real carny shit, right? Now, this man developed such a reputation that he was once said to have wrestled a bull rampaging throughout the town uh, whilst he was a police officer. Uh, This gained him the nickname Wild Bull Curry, a name that soon replaced his true name, Fred, because Fred is not intimidating and Bull is very intimidating. But... Bull found that even being a cop in the 1930s did not sate his appetite for bloodshed. And instead, he decided to go to Detroit and began developing a brutal, violent style of wrestling, unlike anything ever really seen before him. This notoriety became so great that once he fought uh, boxing legend Jack Dempsey, uh, Bull would claim later that he knocked him out. But the truth, of course, is that he got fucking butterbeaned and got knocked out in the second round. But, you know, Carney's going to Carney, you know, I, gotta- I, I was about to mention, like, I love when wrestlers get into like real life uh, interactions like that. And because of who they are, they could just totally run with it because they know the professional yep. boxer is not going to like challenge them on that. Yep. That's just a little a little tidbit in uh, in wrestling lore that I love. Uh, and so undeterred, excuse you, excuse you, Mercury you wants to, to interject. Up? Do you want to interject or do you want to leave? Do you want to leave? Okay. Jeez. Very rude. In or out, what are you doing? Come on. Thank you. In or out. Outrageous. Outrageous. Kids these days. Okay, as I was saying before so rudely interrupted, undeterred, this young man full of ill will and contempt for fellow man relocated himself to Texas, where he was so violent that despite his popularity with the crowds, bookers were terrified to have him win the Texas Heavyweight Championship. So instead, they created a new championship for him. 
the Brass Knuckles Championship. This was a belt that Curry would go on to hold 20 times facing top guys of the day in Texas, notably Fritz and Waldo Von Erich. And this popularity began to expand and grow. And thus, tonight's story is not about steel cages and chicken wire, but rather the violence that occurs within them. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight is the story of hardcore. This would be where we would interject some sort of like uh, sound clip if we had the budget for it, but we we're don't. Getting so on, we're getting on the vaporwave 80s music. Just give us some time. We'd be seeing a little more money and yeah, we'll be able to do that shit. 100%. Now, Bull was hardly the only man of his day engaging in this type of brutality. As across the state, Dory Funk Sr. was popping crowds with his sheer brutality as well uh, as in Western state sports. Uh, and this is a penchant for violence that led to the invention of the Texas Deathmatch, perhaps the first true hardcore-style match of its day. Uh, the Texas Deathmatch was the predecessor to the Last Man Standing match, and this was a match that required that you must pin or submit a wrestler and then keep them down for a 10 count. Uh, should they remain down, you win. Dory's son, Terry, would go on to say, I think my father invented the Deathmatch. I had never heard of anyone doing them before him. As his father... Uh, first engaged in this match with Iron Mike DiBiase, adoptive father of the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase, which was said to last over three hours and involve over 30 falls. Could you imagine being in that crowd? I would be pissed. I would be very upset. Dude, they probably went nuts because you got to think like this is like their only thing that they did in like the, like a month or a year. And, yeah, what else you, you know, got to do? Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, when and whenever like cornet or you know someone in the older generation brings up like this style of wrestling with like you know during during like von eric's time and dory from senior and you know like freddie blassie like we like we always kind of groan because like yes we know it was good but you know you had a lot of these and you mentioned wild bull curry you had a lot of these post world war one post world war two guys who were just you look at them and even though they're 26 they look like they're 50 and you know <laughs> they didn't they didn't mince any corners, man. They fucking beat the shit at each other. And when I when I hear about these old style type of matches and how hard hitting they were, they were. And you know this bowling style back in the thirties, you got to think it was kind of a lost art past the eighties outside of the southern wrestling culture, which we'll touch upon. But uh, I I do get it. I do get it when when this type of uh, influence comes up in conversation in regards to uh, hardcore wrestling. And it is uh, a dichotomy that we're going to touch upon in a little bit, right? So the Brass Knuckles Championship, which I had just mentioned, was created specifically for Bull. Uh, it was uh, adopted in other parts of Texas as well as Florida. Uh, you know, Fritz Von Erich was known as a rough and tough brawler in his own right, and eventually he got big enough to be taken uh, by the, rather, the belt. Uh, was eventually taken by World Championship Class Wrestling, which was owned by Fritz, right? And so that became their belt, and then that became their TV belt. Uh, Texas death matches, steel cages, unsanctioned matches, and many other variations began popping up all over the wrestling world as the crowds clamored for more blood and more guts, right? So, and to, exactly to your point, a lot of these guys had that type of reputation, and we're going to see right now where this leads us and why when people like Jim Cornette complain about ah the state of wrestling these days, yeah, it's just not like we're going to see this style of wrestling that exists today exists because of these older guys. So you just mentioned a name that I was actually just getting ready to talk about, right? 
Freddie, uh, Freddie Blassie, classy, classy Blassie. Now he would eventually go on to manage superstars such as Peter Maivea, Black Jack Mulligan, George the Animal Steel, Mr. Fuji, Hulk Hogan, and even Muhammad Ali in his infamous bout against Antonio Inoki. Would you say that like up to the eighties, he was like one of the bigger managers of the time? Oh, I think he's the prototypical manager, man. V1, I mean, right? You, yeah. People remember Freddie as a manager specifically, but, you know, he was an absolute beast and totally within company of all these old school wrestlers that we mentioned. When you look at managers, three names come to mind. Uh, the older fans would think of the Grand Wizard, who was kind of like a prototypical, like, you know, he was like a buck fifty, but like, you know, he's an absolute loudmouth. Uh, I think he was this Jewish guy that was born in the South. I think we I think we talked about him before, and like he would go up to like KKK members and like you know just totally talk shit to them. Uh, the other person I would think of is Bobby Heenan, which I think a lot of you know modern fans will think about. And, sure, Bobby uh, the Brain, yeah. Sorry, one more name I want to mention is Captain Lobano, who was also a formidable manager in the eighties, and then you have Freddie Blassie, because Freddie Blassie was kind of like the prototypical Bobby Heenan where like, you know, yeah, he would bring up a point and then someone would correct him on it. He's like, Oh, shut up. And like, you know what I mean? Just glad. Yeah. Yeah. Like and very, very much like what Jim's managerial style was as well with the midnight express. Um, so like you said, right. He was a heavyweight in his own right. Now he had some success in like NWA in Los Angeles and Georgia, but he went over to Japan and, and while he was still in Los Angeles, he feuded over the WWA heavyweight championship. Uh, against the legendary Korean Riki Dozan, right? The father of Pyroresu. Uh, now, he lost that match, so he goes over to Japan to get a rematch. And what what Freddy does is he files his teeth and he bites the forehead of the Japanese superstar. He draws blood to such an extent that it reportedly led to heart attacks by Japanese fans who were watching in the stands and at home. Uh, deaths as well, but you know, I'm sure nobody died from this, but it definitely <laughs> turned some heads, right? Now, you may recall that Riki Dozan had two very important proteges the founder of New Japan Pro Wrestling, Antonio Inoki, and the founder of All Japan Pro Wrestling, Giant Baba. Well, Baba saw the reaction of the Japanese fans and, and the success that this type of style, this hard-hitting, brutal style, was finding in the States, and he decided to incorporate it into his own promotion. Because as we've spoken about before, there is a kind of nuanced but distinct difference between the strong stylings of New Japan under Antonio Inoki uh, and the more NWA, like, kind of slobberknocker style of all Japan. And you can see it in the older matches. Um People like uh, the four pillars, right? Masawa, Kawada, uh, Jumbo. Th- this was a much more, I-, I wouldn't say plotting. Plotting is the wrong word, but it's its a slugfest, right? right? It's where Stan Henson cut his teeth, right? It's just brutal. Uh, uh, it's brutal affairs. Strong Whereas, style kind of has like a mastery to it, this technical aspect of yes, the absolutely. That they do. And then Old Japan really just carries the torch of old school NWA. I think that's a perfect way of... Uh, surmising it absolutely both of them of course uh having good relationships with the nwa and and like i said it's nuanced right if you watch some of the older inoki matches if you watch some of the like muda hashimoto matches and you take apart the um you know maybe you watch a keiji mudo match instead of muda 
you you know, it's not that they're that different, but definitely AJPW was kind of that Japanese answer to this Southern style, the Southern style, like wrestling. And so Baba saw this, and as a result, AJPW regularly featured bouts between himself and hardcore pioneers, such as Fritz von Erich, Stan Henson, Dorian Terry Funk, uh, and the infamous Detroit-based Abdullah the Butcher, uh, with the latter and Baba having an eight-minute long bout in which Abdullah hit no less than 30 headbutts, and I mean fucking Jesus. headbutts, yeah, as, sure well as, <laughs> as well as just biting him, uh, biting Baba on the forehead. Both men got busted open, and eventually it, like, just... It, there's a stoppage. I couldn't figure out exactly why there was a stoppage, but like they started throwing cans at them. They were not happy with the the style of match that uh, Abdullah and and Baba were telling there. But so 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 one of the first graduates from the AJPW JoJo was Jumbo Saruta. Now Jumbo would grow to be the ace of AJPW for many years before eventually being dethroned by Mitsuharu Misawa. Uh, Jumbo was kind of the guy that took the reins over for Baba. However, Jumbo was not actually the first graduate as he trained with Dory and Terry Funk over in Texas. So the that distinction actually belongs to the giant Baba's ring attendant, Atsushi Onita. Now, Onita had toured Memphis as a young boy. Uh, and when he came home, uh, and, and I want to point out Memphis was at that time the home to the official NWA Brass Knuckles Championship. Uh, Anita comes back uh, from excursion and becomes one of the cornerstones of AJPW's junior division as he battled Chavo Guevara Sr. But eventually he had to retire due to injuries. Uh, Anita spent several years trying to find his way before he eventually issued a challenge to the UWF. Uh, which Nimble listeners may recall is the shoot wrestling promotion that geared up for a takeover of New Japan. Uh, so he was rejected, and instead he issues as a challenge to Masashi Oyagi in a martial arts match, Oyagi being like a karate guy. Uh, now, he was disqualified in this match uh, because he used wrestling moves. Now, he took this very personally. And so he challenges Oyagi again in Nagoya and Tokyo, under the banner Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling, or FMW. Now, Nita loses that first match in Nagoya, but he wins the second in Tokyo. And afterwards, he decides to make FMW into a full promotion focused on the style that he learned as a young boy in Memphis. And as such, FMW becomes synonymous with death matches and like barbed wire. And this was wrestling that Giant Baba did not like. Now, this is where we get to your point about older guys talking about newer styles, right? So Baba coins wrestling like this garbage wrestling, right? Wrestling that requires no finesse, no technique, and it's just uh, spectacle and pain for its own sake, right? Now, you may recall that I just not but two minutes ago talked about an eight-minute match in which Abdullah the Butcher just hit him with a bunch of headbutts and bit his forehead until people threw cans at the both of them. Giant Baba had a bunch of matches like this. Uh, he had a Texas death match with Fritz von Erich, which, yes, it's more wrestling based, but also they just like brawled a bunch and beat the shit out of each other. And it was very bloody, a lot of fluids all over the place. And so Onita was his ring boy like he was his he was his young boy. He watches all of these old dudes beat the ever loving shit out of each other. And he watches all these guys do Texas death matches and love steel cages. So he just thinks, all right, why not ramp that up a little bit? But it's at that point that Baba's like, no, that's trash. That's garbage. And this happens with a lot of these guys. All of these guys 
the Texas Southern style contributed directly to what you see today. But people like Jim Cornette like to pretend that that wasn't the case when it was hell, even um, uh, the stadium stampede match, right? Uh, that AEW had big arena, empty nonsense, right? That, that older wrestling fans like, what the fuck is this? Do you know who invented that concept? It was fucking Jerry Lawler. It was like Jerry Lawler and Dory <laughs> Funk. They invented the concept of brawling in the backstage in like empty stadiums. So I wanted to past bring becomes up a, present. I wanted to bring up a specific event, and I don't know if you recall hearing about it before, but it was the Tupelo Concession Stand Brawl. Have you heard about this? I don't believe so. Please enlighten me. So this occurred uh, in 1980. It's the Tupelo Concession Stand Brawl. And what made this specifically... Uh, enticing was it was kind of like the first time on TV that like you know happened all the time absolutely almost in every episode of Monday Night Raw and Smackdown where the brawl spilled out of the ring and back into the arena and in this match was Jerry the King Lawler Bill Dundee Larry Latham and Wayne Farris uh, Damien do you, does, that, does that last name uh, ring a bell for you? Ferris? Yes. Anna Ferris. <laughs> That'd be funny if they're related. No, Wayne <laughs> Ferris is actually the Hockey Tonk Man. Oh. Anyway, so when this occurred, it generated so much buzz around Southern wrestling. Like, people couldn't get enough of this. And they absolutely went wild at the fact that they took it to the back. You know, you had the classic thing of, like, I think Dundee took a mustard bottle and, like, squirted it in Ferris's face. And uh, just all hell broke loose. And, uh, you know, Warwick said they kind of did it like in a tribute to uh, Andy Kaufman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's one aspect that you can go back to uh, where if you want to pinpoint specific things in modern day wrestling, like, you know, why do they do this? That's a, that's a perfect uh, incident that you can refer to. Yeah, and and so when you look at all of these dudes that grew up watching shit like this and you see them take everything to the next level and you start going, oh, but why? I don't, why did we get there? Well, this is why, because people fucking ate that shit up. You know, it's not, I understand why you have a thousand Hell in a Cell matches. People love Hell in a Cell matches, right? Um, but when you get to like, you know, think about war games. Like the first war games match was in what? 84, 89, one of those two, right? Mm -hmm. That's fucking like 30 years ago. Could you imagine what it looked like then? Let's take one cage and and a second cage and we're just, we're going to shove them into one another. It's just going to be a big cage. Like, and oh my God, it was a massive hit. Who could have predicted like, People, the people want bloodshed, my friends. The people want violence. <laughs> that is what it is. It's funny. Um, I think we, we touched upon this the last uh, episode, too, where we were talking about like how the original War Games ceiling to the cage was so fucking low that like uh, Dustin Reynolds had to like bend over to not hit the top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like, ridiculous. But look what it, it became. You know, it, it, that's you have to start off slow to get to uh, the pinnacle of things. And you want to talk about the pinnacle, right? Well, Giant Baba calls this garbage wrestling. But this garbage was very, very popular. 
And after uh, Onita wrestled Tarzan Goto in an exploding barbed wire match, FMW began a revolution of garbage wrestling all throughout Japan, obtaining now legendary deathmatch stars such as Mr. Pogo, Leatherface, Hayabusa. And Mr. Pogo had, I believe, a match with like Terry Funk or someone that is usually heralded as one of the best deathmatches of all time. Mm -hmm. Um, And and specifically with Hayabusa, um, that is who Onita would face in his second retirement match in 1995 in another exploding barbed wire match. Now I watched that one today and you know what, if you're going to fucking sit here and try and tell me that that match is not engaging fucking wrestling, I don't know what it is because I'm going to link this shit up. It's on YouTube for free, but basically these guys are just fucking going at it. And the barb, it's like this steel cage barbed wire contraption. And if you touch it, it's like electrified. It fucking blows up, but there's also like a 10 minute countdown where, like, by the end of it, the whole thing will explode. It was very dangerous. To be very clear, very dangerous. <laughs> but they're doing fucking sharpshooters, and they're doing suplexes and power bombs. And at one point, Onita gets Hayabusa into, like, a sharpshooter, and he starts instinctively going towards the ropes. And then he, like, looks up and remembers that if he touches the ropes, he is going to blow up. And he there's this, like, massive point of drama where the crowd is, like, electrifying, and the walls of the cage are electrifying. And he's, like, looking at He's, like, reaching out his hand, like, am I... I need to break this hold... Do I just shock myself? Like, very good storytelling. I'll I'll link it up. You decide for yourself what you think. Anyway, this match was meant to be ported to FMW's partner in the States, and it didn't end up happening. Uh, Their partner in the States was a young upstart promotion based in Philadelphia that had a few years ago had its own recursion against the elite of the world versus NWA and WCW and WWE. And that, of course, is Eastern Sports Wrestling, which, as we all know, is not Eastern Sports Wrestling, but is, in fact, Extreme Championship Wrestling, ECW. Now, we touched a little bit about this in our history piece, right? ECW's impact. But in the context of hardcore wrestling in the United States, Ryan, tell me a little bit about ECW. I mean, I think ECW cemented itself as like just the zenith of modern mm-hmm. hardcore wrestling. And, you know, when you speak the name of hardcore wrestling, I think ECW immediately comes to mind. Am I correct on that? I think it's hard. First off, they have extreme in a name. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really hard to see any other American counterpart outside of maybe CZW. But CZW had nowhere near the reach that ECW did. So absolutely. When you're talking like American sports, entertainment, wrestling, whatever, ECW is hardcore wrestling. They're synonymous at this point. So the great thing about ECW was, yes, it was the hardcore wrestling. It was the absolute just disgusting. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just like. This overindulgent product that you yeah, got to Yeah, <laughs> overindulgent is a very good way to put it. I will give ECW credit, though, is because they not only took that aspect and reformed it into a product, they also took the aspect of taking cruiserweights, taking guys under six foot three, 250 pounds. You know, these guys, the modern super figures that, you know, Vince was enamored with 
and other um, promotions as well. I mean, I you can't really think of many superstars in like the '80s that were like you know vanilla midgets to uh, use the term. But yeah, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a house of hardcore. It was a house of let's celebrate luchador wrestling by bringing in uh, Psychosis and Eddie Guerrero and Juventud Guerrero. Let's celebrate Canadian wrestling by bringing in uh, Benoit. And Dean Malenko. Dean Malenko. And, you know, let's celebrate Texas wrestling. Like, you know, it was just really a house of just wrestling celebration. Absolutely. Uh, they, towards the end, yes, they didn't really focus on that. They knew what made them money, and it was the hardcore. It was uh, sex. It was, you know, the vulgarity of everything. But, like, in, like, peak ECW is, like, that's what made it great. You got your hardcore match. You got your luchador match. You got your fast-hitting, lightning-paced Canadian wrestling match. You got your poor wrestling match. Um, yeah, I think that's where ECW will always be, at least in my mind, placed in history. Is that it wasn't a house of hardcore. It was a house of, uh, you know, just absolute uh, wrestling style celebration. And, you know, that's really the interesting uh, legacy that ECW leaves behind. And I think the best way to look at ECW, because when we did our history thing, we kind of we, we said that like these were the big three of wrestling, right? You had WWF, WCW and ECW, but ECW was nowhere near the other two, not not even close. But ECW was kind of looked as like, you know, uh, people like Jim Cornette like to throw around terms like renegade mud shows, right? This was as renegade as renegade gets, because. ECW, right? Eastern Championship Wrestling. I said Eastern Sports before. Excuse me. That is Texas. Uh, Eastern Championship Wrestling was, you know, the precursor. It was the original with Tri-State Wrestling. It was a part of the NWA. It was just the Philadelphia branch of the NWA. And in 1994, when Jim Crockett's non-compete with Ted Turner ran out, right? And this is at the point you may recall, um, you know, by this point... Ted Turner monopolized NWA as his own, right? And and took Jim Crockett into his own. But when Jim Crockett's non-compete ran out, he wanted to try and get himself back going again with the NWA. Went to Todd Gordon and said, hey, let's put on a tournament for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship, right? But the president didn't like that because they thought they were going to try to monopolize the title, uh, kind of like Crockett did in the 1980s. Because as we spoke about before, right, at one point in time, NWA and Jim Crockett was just like the same thing. Like those were those were just like one begot the other. So they didn't like that. So what ends up happening is Shane Douglas and Two Cold Scorpio have a match in the finals, and uh, Shane Douglas wins, uh, but he throws down the NWA Heavyweight Championship. And we spoke at the time that like this was the ultimate like fuck NWA. NWA is dead. Right? Throws it down. And this is because the the president of the NWA and the board were going to be like, oh, yeah, like uh, we don't recognize Shane Douglas and ECW uh, Todd Gordon, along with Paul Heyman, made a statement and said, we don't recognize the NWA. We fold ECW and make it ECW Extreme Championship Wrestling and Shane Douglas is our champion and we invite anybody else to come. And that is like. The sheer fucking brass balls, right? Sure, the NWA is no longer the governing board of the territories that they were, but I mean, think about it as one of the territories, right? In the waning days, WWF is its own fucking behemoth at this point. 
WCW is its own behemoth. The heavyweights are all there. All you have is NWA. And they didn't like who you wanted to be champion. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. And you said, okay, we aren't going to go with that. We are our own thing now. It was the perfect amount of bombast. Um, and that is in part because of Paul E. Heyman. Because Paul, for all of his problems, that man knows how to spin a yarn. And, you know, it makes sense at the time why they did that. Because Paul was smart and he knew that he had to have working relationships with WWF and WCW. Uh, if you remember in the early days of like Raw and like the mid 90s, like ECW wrestlers were, would casually go on there just as to be so- showcase pieces. And, you know, he couldn't really speak out against them. He couldn't have somebody, he couldn't have a Medusa type event where she went to WCW and threw the WWF woman's trash as like a direct salvo to WWF. So the next thing he had to look at that was in line was NWA. And NWA was just the absolute antithesis to ECW. So he shot, uh, fired his shot at them. And by him doing that was, you know, putting a death to all the stupid bullshit that NWA did over the years that we covered in the past episode. You know, it's like, all right, we're not going to take, you know, we're not going to totally align ourselves with like, you know, these stereotypical, like, you know, chiseled men, mm-hmm. you know. We're, we're a new breed of wrestling. We are a new school of thought in regards to wrestling. Uh, Absolutely. Also, you mentioned Too Cold Scorpio. Uh, he does get talked enough. And I, I think it's because he had his own problems over the years. But dude, anybody who's listening to this, go back to like 90s wrestling. Look up a Too Cold Scorpio match. Holy shit. Some of the guys that, some of the things that this guy was doing. Like what AJ Style does with like the 450 splash, he was doing it by mm-hmm. just jumping up two ropes and then doing it like no effort whatsoever. That guy was way ahead of his time and deserves to be talked about a little more in the modern landscape of wrestling. Absolutely. And, um, and, and, you know, Paul Heyman is quoted to your point as saying like in 1998, the national wrestling Alliance was old school when old school wasn't hip anymore. We wanted to set our mark. We wanted to break away from the pack. We wanted to let the world know that we weren't just some independent promotion. And, you know, so the history of ECW is like, it's not that complicated, but like you said, you know, they shoot their shot, they start going, they start getting some promotion in Philly, and they start getting some national exposure. Then they start pairing up with WWF, and so ECW wrestlers would come on, they would invade, right? Um, and then, you know, it, I don't know, it fizzled because like you said... The what made ECW so great, and this is not so I didn't watch it when I was younger, but I spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks watching some of the best matches, right? And they really, like you said, they showcased so many styles that got no play on in modern day it, it, to that point, contemporary American wrestling. No one was doing lucha style shit like that. WCW got that really from ECW, like I would argue. Um, the Southern style was there with Terry Funk. The Canadian style was there with the shooter and the crippler and Jericho. Um, you had people, you had the hardcore crowd. You had people like Sabu, right? Uh, son of the Iron Sheik, uh, a hardcore pioneer. Raven, Sandman, but exactly like you said, so many styles came together to make this, this like really fucking hectic hodgepodge of really at times excellent wrestling it's a shame too because ecw kind of did this to themselves you know and 
Paul Heyman obviously utilized some, let's be honest, some real scumbag tactics. Yeah, he didn't pay his fucking wrestlers. Exactly. So, but it is a shame that ECW doesn't get written down in the history books as what we described. And yes, it is their own fault by going balls to the wall with the violence and all the other bullshit that they did in the late 90s. But I didn't know that either, you know. I, I, I caught the tail end of ECW when it was on at like 1 a.m. on TNN on like Saturday nights. Well, you know, I was barely even able to watch it. And I remember it as such, you know. I remember, you know, Tommy Dreamer and, you know, powerbombing a bunch of women and stuff like that. <laughs> and Sandman. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you know, I, it, I didn't realize what it, what it was until I watched the documentary and it was like, you know, it's a goddamn shame that they couldn't continue this because they could have been like, you know, a modern, you know, they trashed it. They could have been in modern NWA where they weren't necessarily its own federation, rather a roof to house multiple federations. And it could have really been a successful product if it had more money behind it. But it, it, it does absolutely still have a legacy. And of course, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. It's just that it's a matter of, what is that like exactly exactly not to Um, not to discredit anything besides that because it's sold and it made money but like you know it just terms of that aspect of it i don't think it's talked about enough no absolutely it's it's if uh if paul was able to make it a little more solvent and he liked to blame the the demise of ecw on the monday night wars he called it like their first casualties and sure like they had a working relationship with wwf and WCW was uninterested, but I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the market was not really able to provide for more than two major competitors, but they absolutely could have stayed around if they were able to keep themselves solvent. That is really nobody's fault but Paul Heyman's. That is what a lot of wrestlers go on record as saying. I mean, um, a lot of guys, when you ask them about Paul, that's that's the thing. It's like, yeah, he didn't pay the fucking wrestlers. Um <laughs> So, you know, this what was like do? some random promo that he was in with Jericho when Jericho first came back a couple of years. <laughs> and then Jericho just randomly mentions to him and like unscripted totally. He's like, hey, by the way, where's that $200 show? I mean, he goes, where's my money? Where's my money? And Paul <laughs> gets like so disheveled that he doesn't know how to respond to it. Um, so, so in the context of our conversation, though, right, ECW is legendary for what it does to the hardcore scene as a whole. Right. And the history of of hardcore wrestling kind of lives and dies by the story of ECW because like you said, right? We don't need to just be chiseled fucking buff boys to be clear. There are plenty of people like that. Um, but people like Sandman people to an extent like Raven, like the pit bulls really just like, we're just like, like Sandman just looks like a fucking guy. Cactus Jack just looks like a fucking guy. Yeah. Um, and of course the history of hardcore wrestling lives and dies by ECW, and it also lives by Mick Foley, who trained in Philadelphia, got his his big start. He started in WCW, feuded with Vader, a couple other people, but like where he made his mark really was in ECW. That's where like you got him into who he became, you know, uh, WWF and ECW. Um, we have spent a lot of time talking about the older guys, but I think like the two most important people that I feel like when you think of hardcore wrestling, at least from an American standpoint, you think Mick Foley and you think Terry Funk. Um, Ryan, tell me a little bit about the two of them real quick. What what do you feel is their legacy, their impact on wrestling as, <laughs> as succinct as you can be? 
Uh, well, I guess first we'll start off with Terry Funk. And what do you have to know? This long, like we could have a whole episode of Terry Funk. I actually hope we do one day. That'd be cool. Uh, what do you have to know about Terry Funk? Is where you think wrestling was twenty years ago? Terry Funk was doing that thirty-five years ago. Yes. Uh, where you think t- death matches were and the the amount that wrestlers were to put themselves through? Terry Funk was doing that thirty-five years ago, from when you actually remembered people doing it. Uh, Terry Funk was the innovator of hardcore. Terry Funk was the innovator of just absolute brutal, uh, hard way, uh, style wrestling, you know, where he would legit tell people to hit me eight times with the chair, you know, throw all the shit in the ring, have me pile under it. Jim Cornette tells a great story when he was having like one off match. I think it was in Smoky Mountain Wrestling and he told the rest, he was in like a giant like brawl fall and he tells the wrestlers to just everybody turn on him and throw shit in the ring. And he's getting buried with tables and ladders and chairs. And Cornette's going up to the side of the ring. He's just like, Terry, what are you doing? He's like, I don't know, Cordy. And it's just like, you know, like <laughs> the, the, the amount of like pain that he would put himself through just to get a good sell in a match. Absolutely. That's, I don't want to, I don't want to stop the gravy train too quickly. Uh, Cause yeah. absolutely. Like just as a quick aside to talk about like his pain tolerance and like yes. how ahead of the game Legendary. he was. Right. Legendary. I, I recently watched, um, I, I forget what the name of the pay-per-view was, but it's a match with him and Sabu for the ECW championship mm-hmm. in like 97 or some shit. It's the barbed wire match with barbed wire for the ropes. Right. And they have this ridiculous fucking match where Sabu, like the way that it ends is they, RVD comes out and like attack Sabu and then Tommy Dreamer comes out and attacks him, but they rap, <laughs> they rap Terry Funk in fucking barbed wire and then put him on top of a table and then Sabu rips, wraps himself in barbed wire and does a fucking leg drop onto Terry Funk. And this is after 25 minutes of like pain. Mm. And he was 53 in that fucking match. He was the same age as Minoru Suzuki now doing this shit in like 1995. No wrestler was near that level of like, like you said, he was doing this shit before your grandpappy knew about it. So, you know, it's funny. uh, I'm always like a stickler for like moments in history that you didn't think occurred at the same time, but did like uh, the end of like the Egyptian empire, like occurred when like, you know, the Renaissance was going on, something like that. So it's like funny mm-hmm. things to think about. In Terry Funk's quote unquote retirement match, Undertaker graduated high school. So <laughs> just think about that aspect of things. Uh, you know, last point I want to make about Terry Funk though is that you, you mentioned a good match like that. The match I would recommend was from ECW One Night Stand Two, where he teamed up with Tommy Dreamer against Mick Foley and Edge. And it kind of just like, Terry Funk was just randomly entered, entered into that match because, like, you know, he's just the hardcore legend. But it ended up being, like, his swan song performance. And I'm pretty sure his last match. He could still be wrestling today. I, I, I would not be surprised. But he's like, wrestled 50 years, yeah. Yeah, if you want to go back and watch, like, that match and, like, to understand, like, he does the classic, my eye got ripped out! My eye got ripped out! And I swear to fucking God, every time that guy did it, you bought it. You bought it. Like, oh, wow. Of course he got his eye ripped out because he has fucking barbed wire going straight into his forehead. So I just, you know, the nuances and the cells that are involved with hardcore wrestling probably started by Terry Funk. Absolutely. you know, again, we're going to go on forever with this. Dory Funk uh, Jr., his brother, 
trained everybody under the sun. And if there's one thing that that guy needs credit for, it's that. But uh, absolutely, in terms, yeah. In terms of uh, Mick Foley, not a lot of people know this, but Mick Foley was actually a jobber during uh, like the golden era of WWF in Madison Square Garden. It was his dream. Uh, the classic story told by him was that he was in the audience at WrestleMania where Jimmy Snuka, his hero, jumped off the top of the cage, and that absolutely inspired him to pursue a career of pro wrestling. Uh, and he was no slouch either. You know, you look at you look at like the loaf that Mick Foley became. You know, I, I'm I'm should not be talking anything about physical appearance, but like you know, he was a uh, New York State. I mean, he plays like, Santa Claus. Wrestling. It's yeah. it's I think it's fair. He was a New York State like high school wrestling like legend. His dad is one of the most celebrated uh, wrestling coaches in high schools in America, and uh, you know he wanted to live out his dream of being a wrestler. To where he got as the hardcore legend is interesting though, because he started as a jobber in early WWF and he had an interaction with the British Bulldogs. Now, if you know who the British Bulldogs are, they are, um, the, uh, the British Bulldog himself, who he became, which is Davy Boy Smith and the dynamite kid. who was probably, I'm the fucked. Most, <laughs> I'm fucked, but <laughs> uh, dynamite kid was probably the most notorious asshole in wrestling history. Uh, he was so stiff that he broke Foley's jaw in three places during a squash match because that's how much of an asshole Dynamite Kid was. Now, that match versus Tiger Mask, though. Yeah. It worked with Tiger Mask because he had to give a little respect to Tiger Mask, but unfortunately, Mick Foley at this point in his career did not get that earned respect. Foley could not eat solid foods for several weeks. Now, Foley could have taken this moment and said, I'm done. I don't need to go through this every week of my life. He did the opposite, though, and he said, if I'm going to survive in this current climate, i got to reform myself. And through going and training with Bill Watts, uh, UWF, um, excuse me, Bill Watts' UWF Federation, going to CWA in Memphis, he really learned, uh, you know, that strong Southern style. And he took it to another level, where he came up with the character of Cactus Jack in WCCW. Not to be confused with WCW, but Von Erich's WCCW. Yes. Uh, originally, he was billed as Cactus Jack Manson, uh, but he was kind of uncomfortable. Like they kind of made him like a Manson follower, but he was kind of uncomfortable doing that, so they just <laughs> made him Cactus Jack, which kind of is like a little like sprinkling on the Cactus Jack like lore. If you kind of look at it, like where like why is this guy so crazy? Like oh yeah, he's supposed to be like a Manson follower. Like that that's pretty cool. But where he really got his reformation was in these death matches when he went over to Japan. And the classic story goes where uh, he was in IWA and he wrestled in Saitama where he wrestled um, where was it? Uh, Oh, Soji Nakamaki. And this is the famous match where Mick Foley lost his fucking top of the year. Because he went mm-hmm. through a barbed wire and C4 board. <laughs> My fucking God. So, Mick. I mean, it, and, you know, it just goes to the credit of, of Foley, man. You know, a lot of people would have given up after that stiff shot from dying my kid, but he decided to go to Japan and blow off his fucking face. <laughs> Uh, IWA is also where he had one of the greatest death matches of all time against Terry Funk 
in a barbed wire bunkhouse match. Um, It's uh, Mick Foley has so many fucking career defining matches. Um, And like, if you want some smaller um, matches of his, he's got a few no hold, uh, not no hold barred, a few false count anywhere matches against Sandman when Sandman was champion in ECW. Uh, But I mean, look, he's the guy that fucking fell through and off of hell in a cell. He's the guy that is in fucking barbed wire bunk matches. You know who fucking Cactus is. You know who Mankind is. You know who McFoley is. And both of those two just like elevated that style of wrestling to something. And Terry Funk specifically, I think that beyond being like the grandfather of hardcore, I think the reason that hardcore has the legitimacy it has is because all of these old Southern dudes did a variation of that, but Terry Funk just straight up did that shit, and he did it in his 50s. Without Terry Funk making that kind of transformation late in his career after his third fucking retirement, uh, I don't think you see it to the level you do today. I think that it's hard to it's hard to think of it's hard to think of hardcore wrestling without either of those two. And so now, like you said, right, ECW, it has its issues. It ends up folding around like 2001, shortly after the end of the Monday night wars. Um, and then it gets kind of like rebranded in an invasion angle that we spoke about in our history segment, which like really didn't go over that. Well, it just wasn't done that well. It could have, but it didn't. Um, but, kind of right off the heels of it, right? Just to kind of get us to the contemporary part of hardcore today. Uh, Actually, a little bit before this, right? 1998, but really growing in like the early 2000s was another Philadelphia promotion by the name of Combat Zone Wrestling, CZW, right? Now, CZ Dub is not something that many casual listeners might know about, but you might know about it for... Some of the people that have worked it, right? And of course, there is, it's hard to think of someone more synonymous with CZW than John Moxley. John Moxley is the reason, well, is one of the reasons that CZW still exists to this day, but he is without a doubt its biggest star, right? Um, this is a place started by one of the most infamous dudes in the industry, John Zandig. Uh, Lobo, Nick Gage all started it with him. Uh, they describe themselves as ultraviolence, right? But if you want a good example of what CZW is, you look at the Cage of Death. You look at just this... I, I don't know what to call the Cage of Death. It's a steel cage... With like electrified walls and every and there's just items sticking out of it and there's glass everywhere and just like boy it is it is a fucking spectacle. You can make a Something whole night there. out of just getting drunk and watching Cage of Death YouTube videos. Yeah. Uh, do you know anything about Zandig? Do you you have a little ditty? Jesus. I. Uh, not really. I'm not like I love me some CZW, but I'm not like really brushed up on the history that I should have been. Uh, the most infamous person to come out of CZW is Zandig. Zandig is, of course, the owner of CZW or the kayfabe owner of CZW. Uh, he has the famous match where, uh, well, primarily he has the famous Botchamania moment when the he goes to this 
absolutely crazy match. And the ring announcer comes up to him and he goes, Zandig, what the fuck just happened? And he goes, well, I don't know. Jesus. And it's like, <laughs> like this silly, like <laughs> iconic moment in like wrestling history. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, he's just like this talent. Like, imagine like Vince McMahon on like PCP, and that's Zandy. And, you know, <laughs> he has the famous match where he had the whole audience throw chairs at him to where he was buried in the ring with, with chairs and shit. Uh, he would take people on the side of the CCW building and jump off it into a bunch of tables. In fact, I think this happened only two years ago. And, um, you know, it's just a crazy fucking environment, man. You think of like when I think of CZW, I know you mentioned John Moxley. I think of Necro Butchers. And oh, okay. Uh, many people may their first interaction with Necro Butcher may have been through uh, the wrestler with Mickey Rourke. Because oh, CZW, yeah. CZW was uh was featured because they couldn't get the rights to a specific promotion that they no, they wanted to do TNA, but they couldn't get like the rights to it, so they did CZW instead. And it kind of it kind of made sense because in the wrestler, which again another um, episode I like to have something featured on, uh, you know, it kind of makes sense because like Mickey Rourke, Randy the Ram was like this '80s like school like old school wrestler, but had to like obviously that era of wrestling was dead. And he kind of had to reform himself, but like he was this, this old veteran putting himself through death matches that he had no reason being in there, but he actually did pretty good in. So the person he faces in the wrestler was Necro Butcher. And Necro Butcher is just, you know, the, he's like the prototypical death match guy. Yeah. Um, CZW is really just like it's, it describes itself as ultra violence. That's the best way to put it. Zandig one time hung himself. Right. And like, it. To, where where ECW took the legend of Japanese death matches and kind of like stunted it a little bit to where it was they never went much, that far. Yeah, they, they never, never went, went as far. far. Right, they kind of stunted it to just using weapons in the ring and barbed wire and tables. CZ like a lot of blood, the, but yeah. yes, CZW took the legend of Japanese death matches and used you know the C four and like the scaffolding coming off the side of the building like. That's yes. where CZW carried the torch in terms of hardcore wrestling. Absolutely. And like a hardcore purist probably will look at ECW and be like, ah, oh, it's fucking light shit. But like, yeah, ECW wasn't trying to just be a hardcore brand, whereas CZW was like, nope, that's what we are. That's what we do. You might be good at wrestling. You might not be good at wrestling. It doesn't really matter to us. Um, and so, you know, where you find it today at this point, right, is CZW is still around. Right, Extreme Pro Wrestling still around, IWA still around. Um, I think they tried to bring back FMW at some point, but it didn't work. Um, but Japanese death matches still exist. The, uh, they are as popular as ever. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, hardcore wrestling is really something that. It's divisive. And I think nothing is more clear. Right? And and to kind of wrap it up where it is now, right? Because CZW took up that mantle really when ECW folded. They moved into the arena. They did that. And it branched out from there. And now you have indie promotions all over the world doing hardcore wrestling. None of them at the same level as ECW. CZW is the only one. I would call it like one of the bigger indie promotions. 
Uh, Bryce Donovan's worked CCW before, right? Shook Cruz worked it. Um, so CCW, definitely very big. And a lot of alumni from there. Of course, John Moxley putting that shit out there every time he can. Um, but what CCW and what ECW and FMW and, and all these guys did is they created an environment where this shit can kind of happen anywhere. Like AEW in a lot of ways takes its inspiration from the more Southern stylings. Of course, Cody and Dustin being so high up in their leadership makes that matter, right? They got the blood of a plumber in them. Uh, the blood of a son of a plumber. I'm sorry. Well, I guess they have a blood of a plumber too. Whatever. They're all plumbers. Um, and you see it in their matches. Uh, you see it in the, in their storytelling and specifically, you know, when I was doing my research on this, where I wrapped it up was because WWE hasn't done any matches like this in a long time. Won't ever do it again. And probably shouldn't. They're incredibly dangerous, but there are ways to do these matches safely. And the best modern day example is probably the uh, the lights out match between Kenny Omega and John Moxley that happened at Full Gear last year, uh, which was about a year ago. That match was probably everything. You know, when you look at old ECW matches and you look at that, not that different. You know, people are getting dragged through glass. They're getting barbed wires fucking stuck into them. Um, and that was a really great match that involved really good storytelling with a brutal, but there was a lot of outcry about like, oh, do we really need this? Like, does, yes, does American do. like, wrestling stop. need it? Yes. <laughs> I remember I walked away and I was like, I was so excited for it. I was like, yes, like fucking hardcore wrestling is here. And then I was like, oh, I, ca- I guess I don't like hardcore wrestling guys. Like, don't, that, wasn't, can we- <laughs> that match wasn't for AEW. That match was for Moxley specifically because he couldn't live out the dream match that he wanted to have in WWE because Brock Lesnar is just fucking a poor crybaby and Sport. didn't want to have a fucking death match at WrestleMania. And they had one of the biggest buildups where they got Mick Foley and fucking Terry Funk to give him like their signature weapons and it ended in like John Moxley like rolling out this fucking red wagon that Vince probably gave him like it's funny it's like your it's like your radio flyer of weapons and you're coming down the block and you're gonna beat up the kids and like you're that's crazy why... <laughs> and that's why that match ruled so don't be a fucking puss and fucking enjoy it for Moxley's benefit. And you know what's so funny is Moxley actually didn't come up with most of that. He did an interview afterward. He was like, a lot of that was Kenny's idea. Yeah. Uh, because Kenny Omega is the ultimate chameleon, where that man can seamlessly go from cleaner to best bout machine to I'm fucking sure DDT yeah. guy wrestling an inflatable doll to deathmatch legend. Like, he really... My man knows his, <laughs> man knows his deathmatch history in Japan. And that yes, makes he does. sense to have him do that, you know? Um. And and I guess one other Japanese name that I'll mention, and, and, and at this point, right, the end of the segment is that match happening at full gear in AEW kind of serves as a reminder that, like, this crowd exists. That I quit match between Eddie Kingston and Moxley is probably going to be fucking brutal, even if it's not. Still lit. Absolutely. The candle is still lit. It's as popular as ever. Um, That is due in part to trailblazers like. Uh, Bull Curry, like Terry Funk, like Fritz Von Erich, like Baba, um, like Mick Foley, and promotions like ECW. Uh, one other name I'll just mention is uh, we didn't talk about the great Muda. And of course, we didn't mention a great many names in hardcore because we can't, right? 
If you're interested in hardcore wrestling, you can go look up matches of Moxley when he was young, Lobo, Nick Gage, Zandig. You can look up Baba matches with Stan Henson, with Fritz Von Erich, with uh, the Funks. You can look up Terry Funk versus Sabu. You can look up any ma- ma- uh, match with uh, Sabu and Sandman, with Sandman and Raven, right? The, just to name a couple of you. And we will have plenty of matches listed. But Muda is special in that the great Muda, Keiji Muda, uh, invented his own scale for the amount of blood in a match because of a really fucking bad blade job. And a blade job, very simply, Ryan mentioned uh, a little bit ago about opening up someone hard way, right? That's hitting somebody in the forehead until they bleed. And Mick Foley once said that Terry Funk is the guy that can do it the best these days. He knows how to get punched and punch you in the forehead that you'll bleed. Cody likes to do it a lot also. Um, Well, it's a good way of getting color without using a razor blade. Exactly. But most people will use a razor blade. Uh, Muda one time used a razor blade in... A match against... What was that match against? Oh, right. Hiroshi Hase. Uh, in which he bladed himself so bad. He like... Because when you blade yourself in the forehead, there are arteries up there. And he cut himself so bad that like the amount of blood was truly stunning. Uh, and he's just... His face is fucking covered in it. It's very akin to when Eddie Guerrero did it uh, in... Either ECW or WCW. I don't now, remember which one. Now, did he have his he... face paint before this? To people who don't know, the Great Muda, uh, if I'm correct on this, Danny, you can correct me. Uh, he utilized the Green Mist. Yes, he he's not the originator, but he used it. And Keiji Muto, the wrestler, is different than the Great Muda, who was like his demonic mm-hmm. alter ego. He was wearing a red mask, but it <laughs> it rubbed off and then it came back in blood. Um, it was rough. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was something, uh, anyway, (laughs) um, (laughs) to wrap it all up, like we said, hardcore wrestling is alive and well. And I felt that since hell in a cell, it just happened. Uh, it was important to highlight kind of a little bit of the legacy of like why these matches are held in high esteem and, just to show, as we always try to, that the more things change, the more state things stay the same. And in wrestling, if you think something's new, it's probably not. And if you think something's old, it probably isn't also. Nothing makes sense in wrestling is the point. Anyway. If you think something's old, it happened yes, 50 years ago. <laughs> if you think it happened in the 80s, it top. happened in the 1880s. And if you think something just happened, it happened in the 1880s. <laughs> um <laughs> So, as we wrap up here, Ryan, do you have a legend killer for us today? I do. I do. Let's take a look at this one. Okay. There we go. Check it out. Well, so, what this is, this is on Raw, and it says it is Terry Richards. Okay. Who are you, Terry Richards? My one clue to you. My one and only clue to you is that this is a superstar from ECW. Okay, so I feel like this is a little too big. Is this Sandman? Okay, it's not Sandman. No. Think big necks. Big chunky boys with big necks. I'm trying to think. Big chunky boys. Uh, Is it one of the pit bulls? No. Study the face and put a goatee in. Bubba Ray? One of Heyman's most formidable men. Hold on, give me one. Give me one more guess. 
One more guess. The I man. feel like I'm going to be fucking pissed about it. Okay, the only other like person I could guess would be Rhino. Oh, there it's Rhino? There fucking go. On the last there second, we go. ladies and gentlemen. That is Rhino. Yep, that is Rhino. And what I mentioned before is that Paul Heyman used to rent out the ECW guys to Monday Night Raw. Not necessarily as jobbers. I mean, they kind of lost almost all the time. But then you had instances where, like, you know, you had Terry Richards, who actually won his match in WWF. And yeah, Terry Richards, this young, fresh-faced, big-neck boy, became the hardcore legend, the man-beast. I know that man-beast is, like, obviously a dead giveaway of who it is, because that's, like, what he's known as. But I just want to let... You you worked it well. You worked it well. You you went to the last possible second. Yeah, this is the 2.99 count. That's what happened here. Uh... And to my credit. Also, the name the name Terry really synonymous with hardcore wrestling. You have uh, Terry Richards, who's a rhino. You have Terry Funk. And then you have Sabu, whose real name is Terry oh. Michael Brunk. So if you want your son to be a hardcore legend, maybe name oh. him Terry. That's Terry. fun. Um. Oh, you know what? Also, I'm going to need to make a correction here um, because uh, I said earlier that Sabu was the um, was the son of the Iron Sheik. He was the Sheik. It was the Sheik. Uh, the original right, Sheik. The Sheik. It's a common... A lot of people get that confused. The Sheik was a wrestler based in Detroit along with yeah. Abdul the Butcher and they were really credited with starting like the hardcore style uh primarily i think it was an ewa i believe yeah could be wrong on that but yeah a uh, lot of Im- people get that confused. important distinction i'm saying it too late yeah. in the podcast to save my credibility but i am saying it on air so everybody hears that i am a truth teller all right so this is what did i get have i gotten like two in a row for legend killers well, the last one you gave to me, uh, I forget what the one before I got was. Kenta. It was Kenta. Cheap, I got Kenta. Yeah, well, yeah, that was it. Yeah. I was expecting you to get that one. I couldn't think of one at the time, but yeah. Look at me. Pretty soon we're going to have to kill this gimmick because I'm going to get too good at it. Um, all right. Yeah. So probably by the next time we do the next episode, it will most likely be our one year anniversary. Uh, so either that episode or the next we're going to try to plan something a little special for that. Uh, but it has been just such an incredible ride. And I cannot believe that I am sitting here, especially in this year of all years, uh, getting ready to celebrate 24 episodes, uh, a full year of a podcast with my good friend Ryan Doyle. And it is a very lovely thing. Uh, I feel very lucky to be able to do it. And every week, there are like 30 or so people that tune into this podcast for their shout out to our they, boy. They, they, they come brother. here for their news. They come here for banter or they come here because they need something to kill on their two hour commute. And this is boring enough that they can get some sleep during <laughs> it. Either way, uh, I'm very thankful to everybody that listens. We say it all the time. But um, as we come up to a year, it's definitely just um, it's a it's a great thing. I feel very lucky. Uh, we've had two incredible guests on this year, and uh, you know we'll do a little recap next episode or the episode after, whichever one lines up best. Uh, but yeah, it's been a great ride, and uh, hopefully the world exists for more. Great to share the experience. Absolutely. With you,
Not a lot of people could have given up this year. And, uh, we, forged we forged on. We, we grabbed the brass ring. We got into the ring at the nine count. We, we rolled out of the way of the frog splash off the table at the last second. Uh, the metaphors aren't working anymore, and I am getting upset. So, to end it all, what have you been listening to? Uh, I've been listening to Idols. Idols. And in case, yes, in case you haven't heard of Idols, Idols kind of reminds me of like if the hives met okay, like bad cool. dreams. They don't, they don't have the tenacity and fast-paced punk styles as like Bad Brains does, but they definitely have like more of a tenacity to like more like the hives, mm. or, like the shins, and just like just really great, passionate, uh, political and like dark comedy type music coming out of England. And uh, they just came out with a new album, and that album is called Ultramano. I uh, advise everybody to check it out if you just want some fun, fast-paced music. Uh, really a great listen. Okay, very check nice. For me, uh, I haven't been listening to a ton of stuff recently, but what I have been listening to is, because it's been all over the internet, uh, I have, of course, gone back and listened to Rumors, being that Dreams is everywhere right now. And uh, a top 10 fucking listen, album, man. That album's great. And they wanted to shut down TikTok. <laughs> that one man, the, t- the government of China owes that one man in Idaho like a whole many Malbucks. Many Malbucks. Um, yeah, uh, Rumors <laughs> is one of the greatest albums ever made. I don't care. Don't gate keep Fleetwood Mac. Um, also, I've been listening to, I went back and listened to the Black album, and I'm going to give the Black album a special shout out because. Uh, I, I often say whenever people ask me about it, that the black album is the heaviest album Metallica should have never made. And I should distinguish, right? I'm not talking about Jay-Z's the black album. I'm talking about self-titled Metallica's album. Uh, it's the heaviest album they never should have made because it like really derailed their career for 10 years. But that album is an absolute fucking cover to cover masterpiece from a production standpoint from a song standpoint and it's topical because enter sandman is what sandman came out to and it was very over and if you try to watch his matches on the network they do this weird alternate like creed version of enter sandman it's very strange um but holier than thou sad but true wherever i may roam Wherever I May Roam is one of the best metal songs ever written. That is such a fucking good song. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm going to give a special shout out to that album. And uh, I'll lastly give a shout out to, you know what? I'm going to give, uh, it's it's spooky season. It's sad season. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to what is my personal winter album, Dear You, Jawbreaker. Uh Jawbreaker, one of the most influential emo punk, whatever you want to call them, bands of all time. Um, Dear You, their penultimate album coming out shortly after they embarked on a tour with Nirvana for Nevermind or for In Utero. For Nevermind. Nope, In Utero was 1994. Um, Just an incredible album all the way through. Highly recommend if you're looking for some sads, go listen to Blake Schwarzenbach and the boys sing about some sads. Um, Great stuff. yeah, Joe Berger kind of like got the shaft in mm-hmm. the early '90s because they were they got signed to this big record deal because 
the craze back then was to find the new Green Day or to find the new Nirvana. So like all these bands that probably shouldn't have gotten, not to discredit Drawbreaker at all. I was never a big fan, but I saw them at Riot Fest 2017 at their reunion Great. and they fucking killed it. But, you know, they were unfortunately a casualty of that where they got this big record deal that they couldn't live up to. And, you know, they didn't, where they weren't able to have the career that they wanted, but they'll always be cemented as every, uh, <laughs> yes, everybody likes the salt girl. Uh, <laughs> I'll also give a special shout out to, we shout him out a lot. Maybe he should stop doing stuff. Uh, Anthony Capozzi is finishing up vocals with his new band, Lost Becomes. Uh, I assume that'll be coming out soon. I know that Thracian is also working on a new single or maybe some new more than singles. Uh, Anthony continues to be the hardest working man in the game. Also, the world premiere of Resistor's new song is nearly upon us. Will Wagner, uh, both of them from Friend Beers. That's going to be coming out. Uh, Callous Dowboys will be putting out their new album very soon on Modern Static Records. And Twitter tells me that Anthony Fantano has started following them. So the Melon may yet give us an album. Uh, Ooh, hopefully it doesn't give them a life Yeah, fuck you. Don't give them a life for Uh Yeah, local boys continuing to do good stuff. And special, special birthday shout out to Sean Ageman. It's a little late, but Sean Ageman of Washed Up Media, one of the hardest working guys in the scene, uh, instrumental glue for a lot of younger bands, a lot of smaller bands. Uh, hope you just had uh, the, the best day. Happy birthday, um, all right, buddy. so that's that. We're almost at a two-hour episode here. The episodes will get longer and longer. We will get older and older, and you will get more and more sick of it until you stop listening. But until you do that, make sure you like, share, subscribe, and rate us. Thank you very much. The Vaporwave keyboards are coming. If they you don't coming, share it more, you. we don't get higher production values, okay? That it's going to be your fault. It's going to be your problem to deal with, okay? <laughs> so... For Ryan, for myself, this has been the most electrifying must-listen-to podcast in sports entertainment. This has been FFC. FFC. Get it? Because it's like easy dub. F-F-C. Okay, get it. Everyone gets yeah, it. I get it. <laughs>